0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, real conspiracies and cover-ups.
1: Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at luee at Show notes and references can
2: be found at lueepodcast.com.
0: My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. We skeptics spend a lot of time discrediting conspiracy theories, and with good reason. While it's easy to laugh off the idea that NASA faked the moon landing, or spend 80 minutes talking about it on a podcast, as the case may be, some of these beliefs do cause real harm. The anti-vaccination movement, for example, falsely claims that the government is conspiring with Big Pharma to hide links between vaccines and autism, and is at least partly responsible for multiple recent outbreaks of whooping cough and measles across North America. You've also got the anti-fluoridation movement. A recent New York Times article profiles Mukande Singh, born Christopher Sanborn, who runs a company called Live Water, which is gaining popularity among technologists in California. I
1: was I was it. It's incredible.
0: <laughs> I'll never understand why people think Silicon Valley is a bastion of rationalism, but it definitely is not that. <laughs> anyway, for just 3699 US, which is what, like 47 Canadian dollars? Live water will sell you a a two-and-a-half-gallon orb of unfiltered, untreated, unsterilized spring water.
1: You have to use it within one moon cycle, or else it might turn
0: green. (laughs) Yeah, they, uh, Singh thinks that, uh, real water should expire. It should have an expiry date. One month shelf life. (laughs) I'll, uh, quote from the New York Times. Mr. Singh believes that public water has been poisoned. Tap water? You're drinking toilet water with birth control drugs in them, he said. Chloramine, and on top of that, they're putting in fluoride. Call me a conspiracy theorist, but it's a mind control drug that has no benefit to our dental health. (laughs) The uh, Times has a parenthetical where they say There is no scientific evidence that fluoride is a mind control drug, (laughs) but plenty to show that it aids in dental health. (laughs) In fact, uh, in 2010, anti-fluoridation activists were successful in removing the fluoride from Calgary's drinking water, and a University of Calgary study published in 2016 found that this led directly to a rise in tooth decay in Calgary. Benefits of fluoride aside, live water is dangerous for other reasons. Drinking untreated water can expose you to E. coli and other bacteria, viri, carcinogens, and parasites. So, it's completely appropriate to spend time debunking conspiracy theories. But we should also be cautious that we don't become overconfident in our skepticism. Keep in mind that a conspiracy is simply a secret agreement to work together to commit illegal or immoral acts. In this light, it's trivial to recognize that conspiracies, big and small, do indeed exist. While it's true that grand conspiracy claims should be treated with skepticism, as we'll discuss in this episode, governments and corporations have been known to conspire against us. Let's start off with some government conspiracies. As Lauren pointed out on episode 122, the Roswell incident did indeed involve a government cover-up, with the government lying to its citizens by claiming that what was recovered was simply a crashed weather balloon. While it's true that the government wasn't hiding contact with extraterrestrials, it was later revealed that the wreckage was actually part of a secret surveillance program attempting to detect Soviet nuclear tests. So we have a real government cover-up at Roswell, just not the one that people think. So let's get into the weeds, shall we? Let's talk about government conspiracies. We're going to start with Lauren, who's going to be telling us all about the Iran-Contra affair. So we uh, encountered some uh, technical difficulties during the recording of this episode. You may notice a dip in audio quality for Lauren's segment, but uh, we should be back up to our usual standard of, eh, By the end of the show.
2: That's only technical quality. Lauren's segment was pretty damn quality. It was excellent. Yeah, absolutely.
3: (laughs) My fellow Americans, there's an old saying that nothing spreads so quickly as a rumor. So I thought it was time to speak with you directly, to tell you firsthand about our dealings with Iran. As Will Rogers once said, Rumor travels faster, but it don't stay put as long as truth. So let's get to the facts. The charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon. That the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not.
2: 111 days separate those two quotes by then-President Ronald Reagan. The first was recorded on November 13, 1986, and the second was March 4, 1987. Those 111 days blew the lid off of the Iran-Contra affair, which... Until then, was thought to be mostly rumour and conspiracy theory. And it plays like a conspiracy theory. It's convoluted, it involves cover-ups by four separate governments, it has secret deals with enemy nations, it gambles with the lives of hostages, it funds shadow governments, and then it tosses it all into a shredder and makes it into confetti. Our story begins in 1979 with the overthrow of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran, during the Iranian Revolution. The Shah had been supported by the United States, and his ouster brought back the Ayatollah from exile and the end of a secular Iran. This new Islamic Republic of Iran inherited all of the weapons that the United States had been supplying to the Shah, of course. Following the storming of the American embassy in Tehran, Jimmy Carter imposed a weapons embargo on Iran, as they now had 52 American hostages. This embargo put Iran in a quandary when in September of 1980, Iraq invaded and started the Iran-Iraq War. Everybody with me? Yep. Mm -hmm.
0: Anybody remember this? I was not alive at the time. I was negative eight. (laughs) I was only negative four. (laughs) I was alive.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On on the other side of the world, Nicaragua was having its own problems. The Sandinista National Liberation Front had overthrown the long-term right-wing dynasty government of the Somoza family and began the Junta of National Reconstruction. So the um, Somoza family had been in power in Nicaragua since the 1930s. So the Contra military, based out of Honduras, established themselves to fight the revolutionary communist Sandinistas. And, it being the early 1980s, the American CIA was actively helping to fund the Contras. So we have these two completely separate wars in vastly different parts of the world. And we have the United States. In 1983, the U.S. launched Operation Staunch to shame other countries for providing arms to Iran. Let's put a pin in that for now. One of the major foreign policy markers of the Reagan administration was no commies. (laughs) Yeah, and that that
0: wasn't necessarily an innovation that Reagan brought.
2: He was pretty (coughs) anti-commie. Right. So it holds to a certain internal logic that they would be backing and funding the Contras against the Sandinistas. Along comes Massachusetts Democrat Edward Boland. The Boland Amendments limited the American government from providing funding to the conference. Now, the U.S. had two explicit rules, Operation Staunch and the Boland Agreement, that barred it from helping in either the Iran issue or the Nicaragua issue. But there was money to be made and commies to be put down, and no laws were going to stand in the way of either of those. A group of senior Reagan administration officials conducted a secret study in July 1981 and concluded that the arms embargo against Iran was ineffective because Iran could always buy arms and spare parts for its American weapons elsewhere, while at the same time the arms embargo opened the door for Iran to fall into the Soviet sphere of influence as the Kremlin could sell Iran weapons if the United States would not. The conclusion was that the United States should start selling Iran arms as soon as it was politically possible to keep Iran from falling into the Soviet sphere of influence. All the while telling other countries, don't sell them arms. Of course. Shaming other countries.
4: But this is three or four years after they stopped selling them arms. Yeah. And had they already fallen into the Soviet sphere of influence at this point? No, not yet. Okay. But it was close. Oh, it's always close. Yeah. I'm sorry, you can't see my air quotes.
2: <laughs> oh, we could hear them. <laughs> in violation of the Boland Amendment, senior officials of the Reagan administration continued to secretly arm and train the Contras in Nicaragua and provide arms to Iran, an operation they called the Enterprise. Contras were heavily dependent on the U.S. military and financial support, so the second Boland Amendment threatened to break the Contra movement and led President Reagan in 1984 to order the National Security Council, the NSC, to keep the Contras together body and soul, no matter what Congress voted for. So here's where we get into the legal hair-splitting. Who at this table believes that the NSC is an agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities, and therefore covered by the Boland Amendment? Anybody? I?
4: I don't know that I had heard of them before this because there are so many different agencies that are essentially the same thing but are different there, so maybe? Ashlyn.
2: No idea. Well, we were wrong, according to Reagan and his senior officials. Congress and the American Constitutional Scholars agreed that, though not explicitly named, the NSC falls under that clause. But who are they and we to judge, right?
0: Well, Reagan's body and soul disagree
2: with us. This debate comes down to the difference in thought between the congressional and executive branches of the United States government. Congress believed that because they were controlling the funds, they had the right to say that the NSC fell under the Bolin Amendment, and the executive branch believed that Reagan, as chair of the military, had sole say over it.
0: This is like the kind of um, constitutional hair-splitting you get over the First Amendment, where mm-hmm. technically the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridged, but... That is also understood to apply to the executive branch as well.
4: (laughs) No, they're above the law. They can do whatever they want.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal.
2: So, the enterprise was formed, and though staffed and funded by the NSC, it was a private company on paper. What? To skirt the Boland Amendment, they searched for funds from foreign powers. So, they were a private company looking for funds from foreign powers so as not to break the law. So like front organization. Yeah. Oh, so good. we're confused? Yes. That was probably the intent. <laughs> in 1985, National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane wrote a memo that said the U.S. should start rearming Iran to remove the threat of the USSR swooping in and helping them.
4: Mc- Which still hadn't happened. Yeah. Still hadn't happened in 1985. Okay. No. okay. Good. That's a really, really long threat, like, way in the distance there, right? Well, I mean, Gorbachev was always there saber-rattling. But the thing is, like, five years later, it still hadn't happened. But the commies were. I know, I know.
0: Yeah, that's a threat that we'll return to.
2: McFarland learned that the Iranians were prepared to have Hezbollah release seven American hostages in Lebanon in exchange for Israeli private citizens shipping Iran-American weapons. Wow, Israel shipping weapons to Iran?
1: Yeah.
0: That's
4: bizarre, eh? Whoa. That's that's pretty funny. (laughs) It was private citizens, you know, who were arms dealers. But that's interesting, right? Because it's not the Israeli government doing it. It is Israeli citizens who, you know, just like anybody else, if they want to make a dollar, they will make a dollar and they have easy access to American weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea
2: behind the plan was for Israel to ship weapons through an intermediary to the Islamic Republic of Iran as a way of aiding a supposedly moderate, politically influential faction within the regime of the Ayatollah. And this faction was believed to be seeking a rapprochement with the United States. After the transaction, the U.S. would reimburse Israel with the same weapons while receiving monetary kickbacks. So Reagan was briefed on this plan on 18 July 1985, and again on 6 August 1985. McFarlane resigned in late 1985 to spend more time with his family.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: he was replaced by Admiral John Poindexter, who continued on these arms deals.
4: I still can't believe that's a real name. I can't <laughs> Well, that's how it the can... fact, yeah The fact that it's a name know, is how I it... know, I know, but it's still, it's one of those names. It's. I still can't believe it. I like the idea of all of these
0: resigning to spend more time with their family.
4: You know, that, that that presupposes that their family
2: wants to spend more time with them. <laughs> well, we're going to get to it. So, McFarlane resigned to spend more time with his family. And in walks Oliver North, military aide with the NSC, and he is the person most associated with the Iran-Contra affair. North proposed cutting Israel out of the deal entirely, and for the U.S. to sell arms directly to Iran, and part of the surplus of the proceeds from the sales going to fund the Contras... Minus a markup for the arms dealers and the deal brokers, of course. So that's how we're getting back to Nicaragua.
4: Make it simple, right? You know, who needs all these intermediaries? Let's
2: just do the thing. Cut out the middleman. Okay, okay.
0: So so you want to sell arms to Iran because ah, they're going to get them anyway. Somebody's going to do it, so it might as well be us. Uh, so we're selling arms to this one country, we're funding right-wing rebels to fight the commies in this other country, and we're also <laughs> providing kickbacks to non-governmental arms dealers while we're at it.
2: And governmental personnel. Right. For brokering the deals.
0: Of course. you want to make this maximally awful.
2: So Poindexter, he authorized the plan without asking Reagan, who was recovering from cancer surgery. Everyone at the NSC was operating under the broad, yeah, sure, go ahead, that Reagan had given the past August. On January 7, 1986, John Poindexter proposed to the president a modification of the approved plan. So instead of negotiating with the moderate Iran political group, the U.S. would negotiate with moderate members of the Iranian government. Poindexter told Reagan that his arms dealer had important connections with the Iranian government, so with the hope of release of the seven hostages that were in Lebanon at the moment, Reagan approved this plan as well. So, throughout February 1986, weapons were shipped directly to Iran by the United States as part of Oliver North's plan without the knowledge of President Reagan, and none of the hostages were released. None of them. Nope. So,
4: they just said, thanks. What about the hostages? What hostages?
2: Yeah. Oh, good. Pretty much. And this is where we're going back to retired McFarlane. He's over in Iran in talks about releasing the hostages. He and North and two others went over with forged Irish passports, and these talks also failed. Irish. They just weren't involved in either side, so they, yeah. they were like neutral. I just wondered if there was significance to no, Irish No, it, so. it was just somebody who was not involved in the affair. And likely to speak English. Oh, God, I hope they didn't go over there doing Lucky
4: Charms <laughs> accents or something. <laughs> oh, God, that would make this story better, though. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you release the hostages? Fake accent, you yeah. idiot. <laughs> it doesn't make the story shorter. So eventually
2: some, but not all of the hostages, were freed. And Reagan authorized sending over missile parts to Iran as a thank you. Okay.
0: (laughs) It's quite the thank you card.
2: North did say, you know, the person who was brokering this deal for us, he could be put to death if he doesn't get these missile parts, so send them over. The moderate faction inside of the Iranian government was absorbed by the whole. No surprises there. So now the U.S. had no choice but to deal with the Ayatollah's people and could no longer use the it's not the government, so it doesn't count excuse. And so don't forget, some of these profits are still being funneled to the Contras in Nicaragua. So, like all just wars, this affair also has to end. Thanks to an Iranian leak, a Lebanese magazine exposed the arms dealing arrangement on November 3, 1986, 10 days before Reagan gave that speech that we quoted at the start of this segment. Oliver North had his infamous shredding party between November 21 and November 25 of 1986. North later testified that on November 21, 22, or 24, he witnessed Poindexter destroy what may have been the only signed copy of a presidential covert action finding that sought to authorize CIA participation in the November 1985 Hawk missile shipment to Iran. Attorney General Edwin Meese admitted on November 25 that profits from weapon sales to Iran were made available to assist the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. On that same day, in November of 1985, John Poindexter resigned and President Reagan fired Oliver North. Poindexter was replaced by Frank Carlucci on December 2nd, 1986, also in November of 1986, busy time that, Reagan created the hand picked three person tower commission to look into what these naughty folks at the NSC had been doing without his permission. When he testified before the commission on December 2, Reagan swore he had no recollection of authorizing the arms deals. When the commission released its report in February 1987, Reagan was absolved of any wrongdoing, though they say he should have had better control of his NSC staff. Insert any and all eye rolls here. <laughs> The democratically controlled Congress launched its own investigation after the Tower Commission, and it was dubbed a witch hunt by the poor hard-done-by executive branch. Sound familiar? The findings read, in part, The central remaining question is the role of the president in the Iran-Contra affair. On this critical point, the shredding of documents by Poindexter, North, and others, and the death of Casey leave the record incomplete. Reagan escaped scot-free, but with a slight dip in his popularity. The Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, was indicted on perjury and obstruction of justice, but he was pardoned by George Bush before the trial. McFarlane was convicted of withholding evidence and given two years probation. He was also pardoned by Bush. The Assistant Secretary of State, Elliot Abrams, had the same punishment as McFarlane, but say it with me now, he was
3: pardoned pardoned by by Bush. Bush.
2: Claire George and Dwayne Claridge, both of the CIA, were also indicted, but Pardoned Pardoned by Bush. Bush. Vaughn Hall and Jonathan Royster, both on Oliver North's staff, received immunity. (laughs) Oh,
0: good. I was getting tired of singing that chorus.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Oliver North was convicted, but the ruling was overturned because he was granted immunity. What? John Poindexter was convicted, but the conviction was overturned and he was never retried. And the Supreme Court of the U.S. declined to hear the case. So, we were talking about Bush pardoning all these guys. What about George Bush? He was Reagan's VP at the time, during this whole affair. What did he know? He decried that he was kept out of the loop and knew nothing. But his private journals and diaries said that he knew everything. It made a point of saying, I know all about this.
3: I've seen everything. Yeah, I've seen it all. <laughs>
4: well, and that... If the president is out of commission because he just had cancer surgery, mm-hmm. it is literally your job to do his job right yep. now. So if you also didn't know, you are terrible at your job. You are failing. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so Bush won his presidential race and when asked about it on the campaign trail, he just refused to talk about the affair. But yet still he won. Reporters
0: they don't tend to push on those sorts of questions, right? And if you push on that sort of thing, you lose access.
2: Mhm. So it's 30 years later and where do we stand? The Contras never gained full power in Nicaragua. The moderate faction never took over in the Iranian Islamic State. And the United States government appears to have not learned any lessons.
4: When do they ever really?
0: Well, for some reason, the news media always reports that the U.S. is stumbling into war. It's bumbling around like a fool that doesn't know what it's doing. And when they do admit that there are mistakes or bad decisions that are made, It's all, the U.S. is always painted in such a positive light. Like, they were trying to do good. No, I mean, like, the United States, like any government, is, like, looking out for its own interests. It's not like the United States is looking out for the good of the world and is benevolent toward everyone, but other countries, you know, Russia is always portrayed as this, like, villainous force for evil that is just out for its own interests. Well... Give me some evidence that the United States is any better.
2: They're yeah. better at covering it up, <laughs> right? I
4: mean, you know, we
0: still have a what is it, 188 nonviolent protesters who are still who've been locked up yep. since January in the United States just yep. for for protesting and being in proximity to a broken window. You know, one yeah. guy threw some concrete at a cop, apparently, but we have almost 200 that are locked up for it. <laughs> you
2: yeah. know. Or how it's illegal to laugh at the Secretary of State or whatever. Right. And yeah. imagine how
0: American news media would cover that sort of government overreach and cracking down on protesters if it were happening in another country.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, even Trump's tweet about the current situation in Iran, where he talking about how they deserve to be able to protest peacefully and have their voices heard. Yeah. And I just like seeing it right beside a picture of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: We're gonna move on to Project MK Ultra.
4: So similarly to the Iran Contra affair, MK Ultra has its roots in fear of commies. I mean, what else does the U.S. <laughs> do better than be afraid of communism? Really? I mean, they—they've—they're pretty top-notch in doing anything they can to not have communism.
0: We're—we're we're, we're gonna have a fear of commies hat trick once we get to my segment. <laughs> <laughs>
4: MK Ultra is a top secret project that was started by the CIA in the early 1950s in the U.S. And of course, this is prime Cold War time, right? Second World War is done. Korean War just finished. Stronger communist bloc at that time. And the Americans trying to fight the spread of communism across the world. Interesting side note.
1: As of... A couple of days ago, the Berlin Wall has been down for longer than it was up. Hmm. Great, that was awesome. I just thought that was a cool
2: thing that I learned. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool. I remember it coming down, and I remember the Elvin and the Chipmunks episode where they dreamed about it coming down.
4: (laughs) (laughs) What was I saying?
2: Peak communism.
4: Right, peak communism. End of the Cold War. So the United States was very, very concerned, not only about stopping the spread of communism, but that communism might be winning the Cold War. Right. Because what is a Cold War without concern that they've got the other guy has the better weapons, the better whatever. The button on his desk. The button on his desk. (laughs) Thank you. So this is where MK Ultra stems from. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's often referred to as the like the mind control project. It was referenced in a few movies. The most recent one would be uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats if anybody saw that. Love it. It's also been sort of referenced in other movies and television and radio and media over the past several decades, really. So mind control project, so often think of it as things like studying hypnosis, sleeper agents, the idea of the Manchurian Candidate Mm -hmm. is very strong in this, though Manchurian Candidate was written after this project started, that was written in 59, project started in 53, but the idea of being able to covertly control someone at the drop of a hat with certain stimuli and not have them realize that's what's happening was a strong idea. So MK Ultra isn't actually one project. It's sort of the the overall name for a lot of sub projects. There was more than 140 of them. These spanned over 80 research centers. Um, hundreds of researchers were involved with this, and it wasn't just in the U.S. Canada also played a role in this, which I'll talk about.
1: Was it all under the same project, or are these just grouped together like after the fact?
4: No, it was all under the same okay. project. But MK Ultra itself is a very, very broad project. Okay. There were some other projects that had the um, the MK is sort of the the designation of what type of project it is. So the Ultra was this particular part of the project. There were a couple other ones. There was MK Delta and MK Specter, which referred to similar or um those are like continuations continuations or so mk specter i believe was more so um doing these same type of operations but outside of the u.s so actually doing it in foreign countries whereas mk ultra was things that were happening within the u.s so mk is just a designation there
0: stands for mind control
4: (laughs) so the mk refers to mark as in like mark one mark two mark Mark one Excellent. Thank you, Laura.
0: Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3,
4: Mark Ultra. <laughs> MK Ultra was concerned with the research and development of chemical, biological, and radiological materials capable of employment in clandestine operations to control human behavior. That was the stated goal. It is fairly broad, right? Chemical means, biological means, radiological means, controlling human behavior. So they, they were looking at all sorts of different... Things that they could do to alter human behavior. For example, they were looking for chemical or biological agents that were incapacitating to humans, things that would cause temporary amnesia so that people would forget what was happening, and either amnesia that happened at that time or even amnesia after the fact. They were looking for agents that would cause medical problems like temporary paralysis or anemia which is a weird one to me. <laughs> I feel really tired all of a sudden. Oh, I'm losing my hair. Um, if you're too weak to kill or you're too weak I to guess so, but run away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess so. An- anemia just seems like a weird one. Yeah. Anyway, um, they were looking at agents that would increase the effects of alcohol, for example. So increasing intoxication for people, um, changing their cognitive abilities. So when you look at the list of proposed objectives, it's really, really long. So, you can see how hundreds of projects would spawn from these different things. It was a huge project that lasted officially for 20 years, though the bulk of the research happened uh, from 1953 to 1965. and. What's interesting about this, and this is where the conspiracy part of it comes in, is that a lot of the researchers didn't actually know that they were working for the CIA. The CIA set up a lot of front organizations that looked like grant funding organizations for research. So, the medical doctors and researchers and that thought that they were just getting legit grant funding to do their research. So, what what did they actually do in this project? Well. They did do some testing of things like hypnosis. They did do some testing. I'm not sure how much of the paranormal stuff they actually did, but they definitely did propose some testing in that. They did testing with things like electroconvulsive therapy and uh, sensory deprivation was a lot of the research that they did. One of the biggest things that they researched, though, was LSD and its effects on people. They really, really loved LSD. One so of why? <laughs> Uh, So that's where a lot of the research ended up concentrating there and where they put a lot of time and effort. But they did focus on a lot of things. There's actually a group of historians that argue that the idea of the studying the paranormal and that is actually a front that the CIA pushes or was pushing at the time to distract the public away from what they were actually doing which was studying interrogation and torture techniques. So while we love to hear those stories of like the men who stare at goats and stuff like that, that was that whole weather balloon cover-up thing from Roswell. Mm -hmm. Distract from what they were actually doing. And, you know, if you give them something fanciful, I mean, a weather balloon is not fanciful, but if you give them something that sounds really bananas, they'll probably jump on that rather than something that sounds really really They had invented unethical. a new
2: a new material for making that weather balloon so it was fancy
4: <laughs> fancy full
2: It was fancy
4: that's right So in their testing, especially because LSD was such a big part of it, they really wanted to figure out if they could use LSD and its hallucinogenic effects to affect and control human behavior. They wanted to see not only if they could turn um, enemy agents against their will and get them to divulge their secrets, but they were also looking for things that would stop their own American agents from divulging secrets should they be captured. So they're looking for sort of a magical pill here. And for a while, it seems like they thought LSD was gonna be that magic pill. So they started giving it to everybody, just everybody, including lots and lots of CIA and government workers. There there was times where there was just, everybody was taking it and they would observe each other and say, okay, well, what are the effects? How does this person respond in this situation and that situation? Now when I say that they were giving it to everybody, they were also giving it to a lot of people who really didn't want it or who couldn't say yes to it. Uh, A big part of this was forcing people into taking the LSD and participating in this research, so particularly POWs, inmates, uh, people living in mental health institutions. Terminally ill patients were sometimes uh, the subject of these experiments as well. So, they would either sometimes they would sort of force these individuals into it. So, for example, inmates who were in uh, drug prison, for lack of a better term, were basically told that here, you'll have your drug that you're addicted to if you take this LSD. So, Jesus. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep, they were doing that. Uh, they would also threaten these people that once they were taking these trips, they would threaten them that if you refuse to do more, we will extend your drug trip. You will keep, we will keep you drugged up. And frequently what they would do, and they would do this to CIA members as well, they would just drug people sometimes. Yep. And be like, oh, you know that coffee you just drank 20 minutes ago? Totally had LSD in it. Now you're going to trip. Or well, they, they wouldn't even tell them. They, would they wouldn't even them. tell them. So, uh, lots of times they would end up telling them afterwards. They really didn't do a lot of medical testing. They didn't often have doctors around for this research. Uh, a lot of the observations were done by CIA people who are not trained to actually observe effects and, and um, do any of that psychology part that would be very important. But they had clipboards, Laura. They had clipboards, yeah. They they rarely followed up with the individuals that they drugged. <laughs> yeah, So they just kind of drugged them up, watched them for a few hours and left them, you know, put them back wherever they were. I went to that party.
0: <laughs> All you need to conduct an experiment is a clipboard and a lab coat.
4: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't even think they had lab coats. I doubt <laughs> it.
0: The government is always cutting corners.
4: <laughs> so they did a lot of this kind of stuff. They actually had um, a side project that grew out of this whole LSD tripping thing that was called Operation Midnight Climax. <laughs>
0: Midnight
1: Climax. You waited for that reaction.
4: <laughs> so did. Anybody want to guess what this was? If you know the answer, don't guess.
1: <laughs> giving everybody LSD and then letting
0: them look at the full moon. And see nope. And they
1: were
4: ooh. <laughs>
0: Nope. Uh, Jem, any guesses? I don't know. Like, big CIA Christmas party? They dose everybody with LSD and see who ends up in the broom closet?
4: Uh, that's closer. That's closer. (laughs) So what they did is the CIA set up a safe house about a block away from a a major bar district in San Francisco, and they put a brothel in there. They paid the sex workers to lure Johns there, slip them LSD in the drinks before... (laughs) Yep, and then they watched through a, a mirror in the room to see what happened with these people on LSD after they were with the sex workers. That, uh, yeah, Operation Midnight Climax, really a, a big part of this whole LSD tripping and the MK Ultra. there. Uh, they wanted to see if the LSD would allow for better inhibition of secrets after visiting a a sex worker and uh, they actually did find a lot of the currently used sexual exploitation techniques that they use or sexual blackmailing techniques from that research. Another part of MKUltra, and this is one big part that happened in Canada at McGill in Montreal, McGill University in Montreal, is that uh, the CIA funded a lot of research into something called psychic driving, which was a psychiatrist who was trying to cure schizophrenia and psychosis. And so the way he was trying to do this is he was using extremely high dose electroconvulsive therapy, sensory deprivation, medically induced comas for up to a few months. And then once people were brought out of the comas, he would subject them to nothing but white noise uh, for days at a time to try to rewrite their psyches and get rid of bad memories so that they would be healthy afterwards.
0: That certainly sounds like some nonsense and some torture.
4: I mean, it's psychiatry in the 50s, yeah. which it's not an excuse, but you do have to remember how far the field is coming. Um, it was a very different time back then. Not excuse, again, just saying. Problem here was, again, not taking informed consent frequently. The the subjects of these were people who were living in mental health institutions, often who are there for short-term issues and for relatively minor issues, things like postpartum depression, anxieties. These are not people who are having major psychotic episodes or who are having intractable schizophrenia um, issues or anything like that. So uh, a lot of these people ended up with severe adverse effects afterwards, like memory loss and, you know, psychosis and and things like that. So despite the fact that the note-taking on the subjects and actually figuring out what's happening with them was actually pretty shoddy from what we can tell, their records in terms of who was being paid for what and where were very extensive. In 1973, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, the CIA director got really scared about this project and ordered all of the documents shredded. So we might not have known very much about this project at all except for that about 20,000 documents related to MK Ultra got misfiled. So they were sent to a building that typically stored just typical financial documents. So they were discovered about four years later in a Freedom of Information request. And that's when we started to learn more about this. Because in 73, there were just shards left at that mm. time. It was hard to put things together. There was a congressional hearing, there were commissions because the New York Times was starting to report in 74 that this type of research had happened and particularly the lack of informed consent in almost all of the research that was happening. And the fact that this research, especially with the LSD, kept going on for years, despite the fact that fairly early on it was noted that the hallucinations were not reliable and couldn't really be used for their purposes, but they just continued on. So um, there is actually a lot of the remaining documents are now available in a lot of cases, so you can go and look at them if you really want to read really hard-to-read typewriter documents from the <laughs> 50s. <laughs> it sound so nice. <laughs> I tried to read a couple of them, and I, I couldn't. But if you're really interested, you can. The fallout from all of this, as far as I can tell, there wasn't actually a whole lot of fallout for the people involved with things, partly because the evidence was just gone, Unfortunately, though, the people who had the most fallout were the subjects of these experiments. I mean, I talked about some of the consequences. There is one well-documented death in 1955, I believe. A CIA scientist, Frank Olson, he was dosed with LSD against his will. He developed a uh, depression and psychosis afterwards, and he was defenestrated through a 10th or 13th floor window. And um, there is question as to whether he left that window of his own accord which you can look up as well however that didn't halt any of the projects they took a brief pause and they kept going because that was again fairly early some of the victims have been suing the cia the u.s government and the canadian government so the canadian government i mean CIA obviously knew what it was doing. Canadian government was also complicit in the McGill experiments. They allowed the CIA to do that funding. They knew the CIA was funding those experiments. And they also contributed an extra $500,000 towards those experiments at the time. So uh, just because it happened here doesn't mean that our government was outside of the loop. So that is MKUltra. It was really... Not that, you know, ooh, we're gonna hypnotize everybody or ooh, we're gonna use ESP kind of project. It was really drugging a lot of people and doing so to find what are the better interrogation tactics, what are the better torture tactics that we can employ against our enemies.
1: Did any actual science that was of use come out of any of this, as far as you could tell? Science?
4: <laughs> I didn't see much of that. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I might have missed that. So I don't know. It seems that how interrogation works and the techniques from it are the things that really came out of this. So and
0: it doesn't feel great to try to look for a silver lining in all of this either.
4: Yeah. Yeah. There's really nothing redeeming about this. I guess the one redeeming thing that came out of this is that after this was leaked in 76, President Gerald Ford put it into law that the CIA cannot test drugs on people without their prior consent. And then subsequent presidents expanded that ruling so that they just can't test drugs on people anymore. Now, of course, we know that that doesn't always stop people (laughs) from doing things, as Lauren pointed out in in her segment. But at least... It wasn't something that was just assumed at that point. It was put into law, so that was something, I guess.
1: We'll be able to prosecute them if it happens again, when it happens again. Maybe. Is that too
4: cynical to say?
2: (laughs) This is a very cynical episode. Yeah, well, it's not going to
0: get any lighter. In 1964... A year after the March on Washington, at the height of his civil rights work, Martin Luther King Jr. received a letter. It read, in part, King, look into your heart. You know you are a complete fraud and a great liability to all of us Negroes. White people in this country have enough frauds of their own, but I'm sure they don't have one at this time that is anywhere near your equal. You are no clergyman and you know it. I repeat, you are a colossal fraud and an evil, vicious one at that. You could not believe in God and act as you do. Clearly, you don't believe in any personal moral principles. The letter makes reference to King's involvement in several extramarital affairs, later confirmed and apparently an open secret within the leadership of the civil rights movement at the time, and an audio tape was enclosed that the author threatened to make public. Quote, King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. King immediately met with other civil rights leaders, informing them that he'd received a letter urging him to kill himself. The letter was unsigned, but despite its overwrought tone and its many mistakes, King thought he knew who had sent it. In 1975, eight years after his death, the Senate's Church Committee on Intelligence Overreach confirmed King's suspicions. The letter had been sent by the FBI. In fact, a copy of the letter currently resides in J. Edgar Hoover's collection of confidential files at the National Archives. COINTELPRO, the Federal Bureau of Investigation's counterintelligence program, began in 1956 with the aim of taking down the Communist Party USA but it quickly expanded in scope. Infamous FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover ordered his agents to quote expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of domestic political bodies deemed subversive, including civil rights groups, feminist organizations, anti-war protesters, and other parts of the larger New Left movement. The Church Committee later concluded that several aspects of the FBI's covert counterintelligence program were illegal, but at the time, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy signed authorizations for several of the programs falling under the umbrella of COINTELPRO, including approval for wiretapping Martin Luther King. While the vast majority of the groups targeted by COINTELPRO were left-leaning, declassified documents reveal that the Ku Klux Klan was also under surveillance. But regardless of any efforts they may have been making, the FBI was either unable or unwilling to stem the tide of anti-black violence. In April 1964, King called the FBI quote, "...completely ineffectual in resolving the continued mayhem and brutality inflicted upon the Negro in the Deep South." While the FBI justified its surveillance of King by pointing to communist ties among his advisors, there seemed to be some level of personal animus between J. Edgar and Martin Luther King. At a news conference later in 1964, Hoover called King, quote, The most notorious liar in the country. The Church Committee later reported that, quote, Rather than trying to discredit the alleged communists it believed were attempting to influence Dr. King, the Bureau attempted a curious tactic of trying to discredit the supposed target of Communist Party interest, Dr. King himself. In November 2017, the Washington Post reported on the release of a new trove of FBI documents from the Hoover era. A 1968 analysis paints King as, quote, a wholehearted Marxist who has studied Marxism believes it and agrees with it, but because of his being a minister of religion, does not dare to espouse it publicly. But for all this McCarthyist rhetoric, the evidence doesn't actually bear this out. In 1965, King reportedly told advisor Bayard Rustin that he wished to publicly disavow ties to communism, describing it as, quote, an alien philosophy contrary to us. But he appeared worried about jeopardizing the coalition he'd built, which included both leftists and moderates. Though he never endorsed a candidate publicly, King voted for John F. Kennedy in 1960. King was critical of both the Republican and Democratic parties at the time, writing, quote, This coalition of southern dixiecrats and right-wing reactionary northern republicans defeats every bill and every move toward liberal legislation in the area of civil rights. The evidence seems to suggest that King was something of a democratic socialist. In a 1966 speech to his staff, King said, There must be better distribution of wealth, and maybe America may move toward democratic socialism. Call it what you may, call it democracy, or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. So King was not a communist. He certainly had socialist leanings at times, and some of his advisors were more deeply involved in the larger New Left movement. But his ties to communism seemed to be more of an excuse that J. Edgar Hoover used to target him.
2: It was a favorite boogeyman of Hoover's.
0: The existence of COINTELPRO remained secret until 1971, when an activist group called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole classified documents referencing the counterintelligence program. The Citizens Commission forwarded these documents to the news media and members of Congress, noting that the actions of the FBI in this case violated the First Amendment rights of American citizens. The Washington Post ran a front-page story on 24th of March, 1971, and these revelations eventually resulted in the Church Committee investigation. So, does COINTELPRO qualify as a conspiracy? Yeah. Sure. We have elements of the government conspiring to illegally surveil political organizations and individuals, and to restrict citizens' ability to organize and engage in public protest. In a BBC interview, MIT professor and political activist Noam Chomsky described Cointelpro as, quote, "...a program of subversion carried out not by a couple of petty crooks, but by the National Political Police, the FBI, under four administrations." The letter to Martin Luther King demonstrates that the government was willing to attempt to blackmail a civil rights leader into committing suicide. In 2014, the New York Times reported that James Comey, then director of the FBI, kept a copy of the King wiretap request on his desk to remind himself of the Bureau's capacity to do wrong. Such reminders are important. There are plenty of other government conspiracies and cover-ups that we could talk about, but we're now going to move on to corporate conspiracies. One common example uh, of a corporate conspiracy is a simple collusion among would-be competitors. This can take several forms, including price-fixing, in which large corporations conspire to keep the prices of goods and services Uh, high—telecom companies, come to Uh, mind—and wage-fixing, in which corporations agree not to compete for labor and conspire to keep wages low. Google, Apple, Adobe, and Intel actually were were sued recently and settled a class-action lawsuit in 2014, paying out more than $300 million dollars. Despite what some market fundamentalists might assert, this kind of anti-competitive behavior is encouraged by deregulation. And as we've discussed on the show before, pharmaceutical companies have a well-documented history of burying unflattering findings, often to the detriment of patients. This is something that the All Trials project is working to address. For more information, visit AllTrials.net, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But we'll be spending the rest of our time on this episode covering one corporate cover-up in particular.
1: The fact that smoking and lung cancer are connected began to be understood in the 1920s, and scientists in the field were quite convinced by the mid-1950s. Several lines of evidence converged to provide that certainty, including population studies, animal studies, and in vitro studies of cells exposed to various components of cigarette smoke. From an article published in The Atlantic in 1958, here's a description of the results of one population study. They may be summarized this way, of a given number of men alive at the age of 30, 66% of the non-smokers will be living at age 60, as compared with 46% of heavy smokers. At age 75, 33% of non-smokers and 22% of heavy smokers will be living. After 75, the differences become insignificant, (laughs) indicating that there are some people so impervious to noxious influences as to remain highly durable in spite of them.
4: (laughs) I love old-timey words.
1: I know. Fantastic. (laughs) So impervious to noxious influences. (laughs) Uh, Another study was described as follows. Under the guidance of the American Cancer Society's Advisory Committee on Statistics, A group of statistical experts of acknowledged experience and competence. (laughs) Doctors E.C. Hammond and Daniel Horn devised an investigation scheme in which the smoking histories of a very large number of men not known to have cancer of the lung were recorded. Histories were obtained from over 187,000 men between the ages of 50 and 70. They included men who had never smoked, those who had smoked exclusively either cigarettes or pipes or cigars, and those who had indulged in mixed smoking practices. The approximate quantities smoked were set down. After 18 months, the first follow-up analysis was begun, and it was found that 4,854 deaths had occurred in the study group. Heavy cigarette smokers died of heart disease at nearly twice the rate of those who had never smoked. The death rates from cancer of the lung were at least five times higher in the heavy cigarette smoking group than in non-smokers, and death rates were appreciably higher among men who smoked cigarettes lightly than among non-smokers. For instance, if attention is restricted to the men whose lung cancers were diagnosed with reasonable certainty, it was found that only two lung cancers occurred during the study interval among the 32,460 men who had never smoked, the standardized rate of 4.9 per 100,000. By contrast, there were 152 deaths from lung cancer among the 107,978 men who had smoked cigarettes regularly at some time, the rate of 145 per 100,000. Regular cigarette smokers died from lung cancer at a rate 29 times higher than did non-smokers. By all odds, as might be expected, the highest rate of death from cancer of the lung appeared in the group which admitted to smoking two packages of cigarettes or more a day at the time of questioning. These men died of lung cancer at a rate 90 times higher than that of men who had never smoked.
0: I I can't imagine a a two-pack-a-day smoker. Good lord.
4: It's constant. It's just like you were never without a cigarette in your mouth. I, I can imagine. My grandmother...
1: My parents were up to a pack and a half at one point each.
0: So expensive.
1: And truckers. I know a trucker mm-hmm. who would measure distances by how many smokes until that place. So like he knew that it was three smokes between this town and this town or whatever.
0: You
4: can tell we're not smokers around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, honestly, I thought for a long time like I have a coffee habit. The idea of of smoking like it sounds like something I would probably enjoy. <laughs>
2: I really, really, really enjoyed it. I'm
0: not gonna do it though.
1: When vaping was just starting and like I knew that you could get like cotton candy flavors stuff, I was like, that sounds kinda nice. Like that sounds fun, <laughs> but I mean now the research is starting to come in that basically inhaling anything is not the greatest for you. And
2: the one hit you've ever taken off of even a non-narcotic hookah, you had a coughing fit. Yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I want the fruity flavors. <laughs>
1: Uh, So other studies involved burning tobacco and painting the resulting tar onto shaved mice and hairless rabbits, uh, which, yeah, reliably caused tumors, most of which would become cancerous if given enough time. Uh, Inhalation experiments were mostly inconclusive, but the researchers involved agreed that the timescales involved just weren't enough to show the results that they expected to get.
2: Rats don't live long enough to (laughs) hotbox.
1: Angel H. Ruffo founding director of Argentina's Institute of Experimental Medicine for the Study and Treatment of Cancer, published many articles using these methods, which implicated smoking in the genesis of cancer. These articles were published mostly in Spanish and German, quote, prompting enthusiastic endorsement from the German public health establishment, but also ridicule from the cigarette industry. In retaliation, German tobacco manufacturers soon established a journal called Chronica Nicotiana and a scientific academy, the Academia Nicotiana Internationalis, to publish research that was pro-tobacco. So yeah, this guy published a bunch of articles that, you know, everything involved in tobacco is causing cancer in animals, and the German tobacco fought back by creating an entire vanity journal about how tobacco's not really that bad. Another quote from the Atlantic article from 1958 that I really enjoyed points out some things that have absolutely no parallels to our current lives. (laughs) There is in some quarters an unbecoming skepticism of statistics in general and of these remarkably consistent results in particular. By some, a diminishing band as I see it, the findings are rejected because there is not laboratory proof. We must remember that far less efficient statistical methods have pointed to direct and effective means of preventing illness many times in the past, the simple observation that milkmaids never got smallpox, but usually acquired cowpox as young girls, led Jenner to urge cowpox on everyone as a smallpox preventative, and the virtue of vaccination is today denied by no sane man. No. <laughs> 1958, people! <laughs> the article goes on to mention the discovery that citrus prevents scurvy and the epidemiological work of John Snow in the case of the Broad Street Pump. Uh, And then finishes on the following note, a comment which I found quoted in other articles on the subject, written decades later. Quote, If time should establish the innocence of tobacco, such a course will prove less blameworthy than failure to suggest caution to smokers and potential smokers of cigarettes today. As one of my doctor friends put it, If the degree of association which has been established between cancer of the lung and smoking were shown to exist between cancer of the lung and, say, eating spinach, no one would raise a hand against the prescription of spinach from the national diet. So if we had that much proof, we would probably stop eating spinach. Unless there was a pro-spinach lobby. Uh, Another article summarized the attitudes of scientists toward tobacco thus. The 1964 Surgeon General's report which recognized smoking as a cause of lung cancer in men is often regarded as a turning point in the recognition of health harms from smoking. But the Surgeon General's report was actually a kind of scientific anticlimax. From an evidentiary point of view, the case against smoking had been closed by the end of the 1950s, and it was only the truculence and obstinacy of cigarette manufacturers that forced a blue ribbon review by the federal government. Scientists had it all locked down. They knew what was causing this huge resurgence of lung cancer. Apparently, before cigarettes became a real big thing, it was considered like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, almost, for a doctor to treat a case of lung cancer. Like, it was wow. very, very rare. Uh, so even though the evidence was there, not everyone was convinced. In fact, the public was largely unconvinced. Quote, in 1954, for example, George Gallup sampled a broad swath of the U.S. public to ask, Do you think cigarette smoking is one of the causes of lung cancer or not? 41% answered yes, with the remainder answering no or undecided. Even large numbers of doctors remain unconvinced. In 1960, in a poll organized by the American Cancer Society, only a third of all U.S. doctors agreed that cigarette smoking should be considered a major cause
2: of lung cancer.
1: This same poll revealed that 43% of all American doctors were still smoking cigarettes on a regular basis.
2: Doctors in that time used to prescribe cigarettes for pregnant women so they wouldn't gain weight too fast while gestating.
0: There's... An obvious parallel between this, I think, and the climate change denialist mm-hmm. uh, uh, approach that a lot of energy companies are engaging in right now, where they're funding research to show that fossil fuels do not contribute to climate change, when, yeah. of course, the overwhelming majority of the scientific evidence shows that they do. It, the public you know the water is muddied right they're trying to instill doubt and if there's any if they can just muddy the water a little bit then that gives leeway for people not to take it seriously and say ah it's too complicated i don't know and you have the same sorts of things where you get public polling and half of the people don't think that climate change is
1: human climate caused, change yeah. is human caused uh, something and I the find doctors
0: in-, in this case are like the weatherman <laughs> <Right>? yeah <laughs>
1: Well, I find interesting that in the case of climate change, it's a very politicized issue. Like, it's yeah. it's more left versus right than, you know, a scientific thing should probably be. Mm-hmm. I didn't find evidence of that for this. Whether or not cigarettes cause lung cancer did not seem to be, you know, a left or a right issue. It was not well, mentioned anyway.
2: It was pre-Reagan.
1: Yeah. So pe- people were less... Right. Polarized. Yeah, polarized. That's the word, yeah. So cigarette companies themselves were largely responsible for that public perception as we were talking about muddying the water. What were they up to while all this science was coming out, besides creating their own vanity journal? (laughs) The American Tobacco Company in the summer of 1953 took the extraordinary step of sponsoring a series of secret animal tests in the laboratories of the Acusta Paper Corporation, makers of much of the world's cigarette paper, with the goal of finding out whether it was the tobacco leaf or the cigarette paper that was causing all this cancer... (laughs) Their conclusion, distributed only privately, was that tobacco and not the paper was the culprit. So they were worried that it was all their fault. But no, not in fact paper. <laughs> the tobacco industry throughout this time and for decades after until the end of the millennium refused to admit any evidence of harms from smoking. Which just seems so over the top. Yeah. <laughs> like to, to say that there's absolutely no evidence that any of this causes harm in the face of all of it.
0: Yeah, and that kind of consistent denial, that bald-faced refusal to accept the evidence, that can have a huge impact on public perception. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, well, he wouldn't they be couldn't that possibly, confident. If, yeah, yeah, he couldn't possibly. Like he seems really sure, so there must be room for doubt. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's so harmful. I remember when the big white bands of government-required cigarettes can cause cancer came across mm-hmm. the packages. It was just people were flabbergasted. There was no none of those pictures on there
1: either. But I remember when the pictures started, when mm-hmm. they had to put those on. I, I really liked this quote. It really is very impactful for me. It says, No one can say precisely how many lives were lost as a result, but if the decline in per capita consumption that began with the U.S. Surgeon General's report in 1964 had begun instead in 1954, when the conspiracy to challenge the science was launched, millions of lives would have been saved. Mm-hmm. So it just, if that curve had started earlier and i mean we're talking about like a 25 year latency right so some of the research i was reading says that more lives will be lost to smoking in this millennium than the last because we're not going to see a lot of the Mm -hmm. results of all of the smoking that happened up until the year 2000 when things really started to uh when smoking peaked until 2020 2030
4: right
0: yeah exactly and we have to remember that things are different in different countries too, like smoking is still incredibly common in China, Yeah, Yeah, I mentioned that as well. Oh, sorry.
1: No worries. So I found a, a long and excellent article that looked into the history of the tobacco industry cover-up uh, using tons and tons of documents that were published online as a result of a court case against the tobacco industry. So one of the results of that court case was they had to t- basically take all of this incriminating stuff and publish it, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is kind of an excellent smack in the face. I like it. But they didn't have to tell anyone they published it. I think I feel like this is just like my whole segment wrapped up in one quote. Uh, The tobacco company conspiracy to manufacture a false controversy about smoking and health is summarized in a 1972 memorandum, which defined their strategy as consisting of three parts. A creating doubt about the health charge without actually denying it. B advocating the public's right to smoke without actually urging them to take up the practice. And C, encouraging objective scientific research as the only way to resolve the question of the health hazard. So when, when you lay out your own strategy, that clearly is very helpful to the court. In her analysis of the purpose of the industry's jointly funded research organizations, Judge Kessler observed that the TI, TIRC, CTR, and CIAR, which were all different like quote-unquote research organizations that the tobacco industry funded. Helped the industry achieve its goals because they sponsored and funded research that attacked scientific studies demonstrating harmful effects of smoking cigarettes, but did not itself conduct research addressing the fundamental questions regarding the adverse health effects of smoking. So basically they were just an attack organization, they didn't do any work of their own. In summary, the internal industry documents show how tobacco companies deliberately confused the public debate about smoking and health by creating and supporting research organizations that were never really interested in discovering the truth about whether smoking was a cause of a disease. Cigarette makers spent millions of dollars to convince the public their product was safe. Uh, there was even a document I saw where they were discussing, well, yeah, the public knows that we spent $30 million talking about the science of it, but how can they be convinced that uh, that this is a bad thing when they know that we spent $300 million on advertising? Like, they were talking about how since their science budget was just a drop in the bucket, it must not be a big deal
2: kind of thing, <laughs> which
1: was... Interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's some faulty logic there, somewhere.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's unpack
2: that.
1: Uh, they even helped us to quantify the effects of their propaganda. In 1973, the Tobacco Institute hired AHF Basico Market Research Company and Audience Studies, Inc. to measure the impact of its 1972 propaganda film, Smoking and Health, The Need to Know, which was shown to hundreds of thousands throughout the country, including high school students. Oh, great. Prior to screening, viewers were asked a series of questions about whether the Surgeon General could be wrong about the dangers of smoking. The same questions were then asked after the screening. Ann Duffin at the Tobacco Institute was happy to report that the film reduced by 17.8% the number of people agreeing that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. So the people who agreed with that statement went from 749 to 57.1%. Which is huge. That's, ugh. Oh, it's like that horrible documentary I went to see the other day about Wi-Fi. Oh, <laughs> it was so bad. Um, so I wanted to, to talk a little bit about some amazing statistics about how fast cigarette companies are currently quote-unquote manufacturing death, Um, just because they're kind of amazing. (laughs) If cigarettes cause one lung cancer for every three or four million smoked, this means that a factory such as Hongta's is responsible for generating 25,000 or 30,000 deaths per year from lung cancer, and about twice that number from other diseases. There are about 400 industrial-scale cigarette factories in the world, each of which causes thousands of preventable deaths per year. Most of the stats uh, that they're talking about here are from China, which is one of the only places where cigarette smoking is still increasing.
4: Right. It's like
0: working at a munitions factory. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You're like manufacturing bullets that people are putting in their mouths. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: We can think about the deaths caused per unit weight of stuffing. Cigarettes contain about two-thirds of a gram of tobacco, which means that if it takes three million cigarettes to cause one lung cancer, it takes about two million grams, or two metric tons, to cause one lung cancer. A typical tobacco farm yields about two tons per hectare, so a 10 hectare field will cause about 10 lung cancer deaths per year, and 20 additional deaths from heart attacks, gangrene, cancers of the bladder and oral cavity, etc. Finally, we can also think about this in terms of the value of a life, as assumed by tobacco manufacturers. Cigarette companies make about a penny in profit for every cigarette sold, or about $10,000 US for every million cigarettes purchased. Since there is one death for every million cigarettes sold or smoked, a tobacco manufacturer will make about $10,000 US for every death caused by their products. Otherwise put, a cigarette manufacturer will not forego $10,000 in profit, even if this means the death of one of their customers. The value of a human life to a cigarette manufacturer is about (laughs) (laughs) $10,000.
0: Not a lot. Well said.
1: At uh, at the end of the very long article about with all of those documents, um, there was an interesting section called "How Tobacco Companies Changed." <laughs> <laughs> so, judging by I'm the fact, my breath. yeah, they're still willing to get ten thousand dollars profit per death. I'm thinking probably no, but there's some some interesting data here.
2: Without cigarettes, we wouldn't have aluminum foil. The, really, the R.J. Reynolds Corporation started by manufacturing cigarettes, oh. and then they switched over to a division purely to the the foil that was used inside the packages to protect the cigarettes. They hmm. Hmm. someone would have figured out foil without cigarettes, but would they have figured out transparent aluminum?
1: <laughs> they still haven't.
0: Jim knows what I'm talking about. It's a nerd thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
1: The 1998 Master Settlement Agreement was intended to reform the tobacco industry by requiring the companies to alter their marketing practices and dissolving the various research organizations they had supported. In October of 1999, Philip Morris Tobacco Company announced to the public on its website that there is an overwhelming medical and scientific consensus that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and other serious disease in smokers. So that sounds like an admission. Where's the butt? However, <laughs> when shareholders proposed a resolution asking the company to produce a report on how it intended to correct the defects that resulted in its products causing disease. The product causes disease. You just you can't correct it's that. Like, I'm sorry. It's like, this is arsenic. <laughs> how are you going to make this healthy? I can't. It's <laughs> arsenic. Like, yeah, you
4: can't do that. Like
0: There are substances other than nicotine that cause the problem but like your fundamental like nicotine itself is also a carcinogen.
1: Right yeah but you can't even nicotine free ones were found to cause cancer at almost the same rate so it's the tar itself that is the biggest issue. Uh, So after so when the shareholders proposed why don't you just why aren't you going to do something about this the company responded that the shareholders resolution quote mischaracterizes the company's website as constituting a public admission that cigarettes cause illness. It does not. (laughs) <laughs> what yeah they're just like we didn't admit anything Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Uh-uh. okay <laughs> today all of the major tobacco companies have websites acknowledging that smoking is a cause of disease however the current website statement of rj reynolds on the health effects of smoking continues to insist that smoking causes disease in some individuals only quote in combination with other factors
2: and like
1: in, the... <laughs> in the courtroom, companies continue to challenge allegations about nicotine addiction and smoking causing illness. The tobacco companies have not yet been able to bring themselves to accept responsibility for their past illegal acts. Quote, in summary, it does not seem that the tobacco industry has changed since the 1998 master settlement agreement, but instead has found alternative ways to support research and create controversy about the health risk of smoking. For example, in the 2006 election, the tobacco industry spent over 100 million U.S. dollars opposing state-initiated proposals to limit smoking in public places and raise cigarette taxes. Have the tobacco companies changed? No, they've just changed their tactics and they're going to continue to kill people. Have you seen Thank You for Smoking? I have. I love that movie. It's a really good movie. Yeah.
4: I know I have, but I forget. Stars
0: Aaron
1: Eckhart?
4: Yeah. No, I remember Aaron. watching, I remember just the very beginning of it, and then I don't remember the rest.
1: He's he's so hateable, but also so charismatic. So how are we finishing this
0: one, Jen? So we could, of course, go on at even greater length about more and more corporate and government conspiracies and cover-ups. Uh, Some that we didn't get to talk about this episode uh, include the Tuskegee experiment uh, in which researchers studied the natural progression of syphilis in impoverished African-Americans without disclosing to these men that they were infected or providing them with penicillin, which was a known cure for the disease. Uh, We could talk about Watergate. Of course, everybody's talking about Watergate these days uh, because of the ongoing investigation into the election of Donald Trump, which we're also not going to talk about. (laughs) Uh, So,
2: corporations are not your friend. Nope. Government's not your friend. Corporations aren't your friend. Who's your friend, Jim? The
3: cast of L-U-E-E! Yay! Yay.
0: (laughs) This has gone on long enough, I guess. I just want to remind our listeners that skepticism is very important. But it's just the first step. It's also always important that we check our skepticism against the evidence, lest we drift into outright denialism, uh, as we see with the uh, global warming skeptics. Because sometimes, someone is really trying to pull one over on you. We're going to end this show uh, with, I guess, a little bit of L-U-E-E news, because the uh, show format's going to be changing a little bit for the next little while. Ashlyn, why don't you uh, give our listeners the details?
1: Uh, So, Jem is super busy. He is, like, 400 different things at once, including (laughs) father and student and full-time employee.
0: Don't forget board chair of Bad Science Watch. (laughs) uh,
1: So, he is going to be taking a six-month break, and Lauren and I are going to be taking over most of the production of the show, possibly with Laura. We're not sure if she's still coming over for the show. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So, uh, next month we're going to be talking about the Olympics, uh, timely topic. And I also got into it because I almost switched my topic from smoking to the Russian doping scandal. So I'm Mm. really looking forward to diving more into that, but we are still hoping to bring you the same quality content. We are just going to be down a member. We'll bring in some, uh, extra special guests and probably some interviews over the next six months and then we'll see where we're at
0: great this isn't goodbye forever it's just goodbye for now (laughs) so long
1: farewell thanks for all the fish
0: (laughs) (laughs) so long and thanks for all the fish
2: good night night. night. night.
0: life the universe and everything else is produced by ashlyn noble and jem newman If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. We're going to start off with Lauren, who's going to tell us all about the Iran-Contra affair.
1: I like that it's always called an affair, <laughs> and yeah. when I was looking up different cover-ups, there were other ones that were called affairs, but then there are other ones that are, uh, you know, called the uh, just a cover-up or a conspiracy, and I want to know what defines an affair rather than <laughs> something
2: more general. Well, when two governments love each other very much... Well. <laughs> Maybe
0: that's it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we 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 had the ten minute interview where Jim swears on things.
1: <laughs> I found a great name recently. It was while I was actually looking at the Wikipedia article for the Russian doping scandal. One of the guys who was in charge of the uh, IOC investigation. His name is Dick Pounder. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go by Richard? <laughs>
2: You <laughs> broke, Laura. Laura's just here in the corner. <laughs> oh my god! John Poindexter proposed to the president.
0: Mr. Poindexter, that's not legal yet. It's not, <laughs> not legal for another forty years. What would
2: Nancy say? <laughs> I still remember
1: camping with my parents one summer, and I was fairly young, like maybe nine, and I read the word homosexual in the newspaper. And I asked my parents what it meant because I didn't understand the article, and they were like obviously uncomfortable and they didn't want to explain it to me, and and so I just kept saying homosexual, homosexual, homosexual <laughs> because even then was, you knew <laughs> it was obviously making them squirm. I thought that was funny, and then Tyler started in, so we're both just shouting homosexual at each other in the middle of a campground. <laughs> So, if we had that much proof, we would probably stop eating spinach. Unless there was a pro spinach lobby. Are
0: you Who saying does? spinach?
1: Yeah, spinach. Spinach? <laughs> <laughs> For example, in the 2006 election, the tobacco industry spent over US $100 million. Wool.
0: <laughs> 100
2: US dollar million?
1: <laughs> I'm tired.
2: Corporations aren't your friend. Who's your friend, Jim? You the cast of reference. L-U-E-E. Yeah.
1: Yay! We may be pinko commies.
4: I don't know. <laughs> no. We just, we just <laughs> are. No, that was <laughs> just a statement. They're, therefore,
1: we are your friends? <laughs> we're not
0: tankies, though. We're not going to, like, defend. Oh, stone. yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> no, that kind of left us.
4: I only God, learned... That's a like, leftist, is it? Stalin,
0: well, like was... a authoritarian, like authoritarian communism, yeah. A tank, yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: I only learned about the word tankies this past week. Oh, really? Really,
4: yeah. I I had never heard it before now.
0: Um, yeah, it's like, you know, Stalin was
1: pretty okay. He was trying his best kind of weirdness, yeah.
4: Yeah. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Let me break those levels a little bit more. What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Here's the soprano. <laughs> He's there's also the Stalin crushes. Do you remember how pretty he was when he was young? No. No. I wasn't alive.
0: I've seen those pictures of young Stalin, yeah, he was a hunk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, what? I mean his, his hair in his eyes.
0: He's no Ryan Gosling.
1: <laughs> 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 so Jam goes gay for Kami. <laughs> and Ryan's Pardon, Pardon by, by Bush. Bush.